Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on April 19th, 2015. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie called Brazil. It's a comedy and it portrays a a kind of futuristic society which is already here in actual fact where bureaucrats and big private corporations run the world. Uh, So your governmental bureaucracy and uh, the top businesses run the planet. And, of course, that's the definition, really, of fascism. They work together. You can't tell who's who, if they're actually government or private corporations, because they're so intertwined. And many of the the top people or CEOs go back and forth into politics all the time as well. They never really leave their corporations, uh, and that's really the way things really are today. have been this way for a long time. But in Brazil, the movie, you find that even for simple things like having your air conditioning fixed in your in your apartment, for instance, required certain forms to be filled out by the, the person who resided there. And you'll see workmen turning up and they say, well, we can't do anything unless you've got form number so-and-so signed and, and put in a request, etc. And that's where we are today. With globalization and this world global uh, system, you can call it fascist or socialist, doesn't matter, it's all the same thing, actually. If you went to the, the roots and histories of it and who set them up in the first place, and they certainly weren't uh, people on the streets who set up these uh, societies that we're living in today. You, they were funded by incredibly big, wealthy banking corporations a long time ago. But in the movie version, you, you'll see uh, the Department of Information retrieval and so on, where it's a massive building, a massive tower, where high security is there and so on, and everybody's business is known about. You're all giving your ID numbers, you all have your life history stored there, where you work, how many jobs you've had, where you worked at, and so on. Your complete personality profile is in this Department of Information Retrieval. But it's quite interesting how, using various analogies in a movie version, or a satire, you can really show what the world is already like, in fact. Under different guises, they've got homeland security in the U.S. and the same kind of things in other other countries as well. They're all the same things with different names sometimes. That's how they confuse you, so you never catch on to the system you're actually living under. Most folk never even think they're living under a system other than what's portrayed by the mainstream or the newsman of a democracy, and you, you vote and your politicians do all the rest. Nothing is further from the truth and it hasn't been anywhere near that for an awful long time. But this last week I had my own little, one of the many experiences you get today with my phone going out and it got restored yesterday, Friday. And a week prior to that, one week exactly in fact, uh, it, went, it went out and uh, I had to make a phone call to the vet in the morning, on Friday morning, a week, one week ago. And what happened was the, the phone was fine in the morning. Uh, I phoned the vet. They couldn't take him. So I, I got off the phone and was going through the phone book to find other vets. And the police turned up 20 minutes after that one call. And they said a 911 call had been come from this number. 
And I, I said, it's impossible. As I've only made one call this morning, that was to the vet. And they said, yeah, one of the, 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 the officers asked me, this is um, any problems with the phone line, uh, crackling or anything like that? And I says, no. There's always some kind of problems with it crackling and so on, but that's been that way for a long time. I said, well, no, to me that was normal. And they went away. So I got another vet, phoned up again, and then took Hamish, the dog, off to the vet. He had a little problem with his, his anal glands, common problem, uh, as the dogs get older. Anyway, I came back, and that evening there was no phone at all. The power, the, the, literally, it was, there was just a hum, a massive, awful hum. He couldn't phone out. Uh, well, they don't repair. The Bell Telephones doesn't repair and on weekends, so I waited till uh, actually the Tuesday. I had to go outside the house to find a place with a phone, the record phone. So I phoned up from a gas station on the Tuesday. And you go through these pre-recorded messages, first of all, punch this, punch that, for this, that, and the other. And then I punched in the number of my home phone number. And they said, this the, the problem has already been reported. And the matter has been fixed this morning. Well, my phone still wasn't working. But anyway, I continued with this, this um, pre-recorded thing at the gas station. And then I got a live person in India. Because, you see, they use the complaints department for all the fixings and so on in India. And the person could hardly speak any English. And awfully difficult to understand, and they couldn't understand me either. But anyway, I, I think I got through to say that, well, the, the, the problem is this, and uh, could you send somebody out to repair it? So I got all the kind of promises and so on you would get from India, because India is, is a strange culture. If you live there or you visit or whatever, you'll find um, that the old term coming come soon, Martin, that they use in Jamaica uh, applies even more so in India, where you're told anything just to make you go away happy. But the next day, of course, it still wasn't working. No repair person had come to the door. He checked the lines coming into the house or in the house. Because uh, normally you have to trace it from the house, and then you'll trace it along the line outside, find out the nearest junctions, find out if there's bad connections, and that's generally where they are and so on. But anyway, no one came. And so on, on the, the Wednesday, uh, called again, and I couldn't get the answers as to why this had happened. They didn't know. It's an utter mystery in, in India as to why uh, it wasn't fixed yet. And, and then the next day was the same thing, you see, uh, the Thursday. So on the Thursday, a guy said, another guy from India said that, because um, I was trying to find out why this 9-11 call was made, and why um, Why there was also um, a, a report put in before I reported the problem on my line uh, from whom? And I thought maybe there's cross lines or something. And he said to me, he says, well, it's a self-reporting monitoring system. I says, monitoring what? He says, well, that monitors the lines. And he said that uh, they're supposed to detect if it's a problem. So I gather it's maybe a computerized or whatever it is. Anyway, that night I got someone's cell phone who keep the house. 
And I was sitting next to my landline phone, I called him again and said, uh, in India, of course, could you f- dial my number home? Because they were, they were sure it was fixed. And listening on the cell phone at the same time and talking, and I, and I chatted away to the woman and so on. And I says, well, have you dialed? She says, yeah, your phone's been ringing for a minute and a half. I says, well, I'm glad someone's phone's ringing, but it's not here. <laughs> it's somewhere else. Uh, so something was crossed somewhere, obviously. And uh, maybe were, I thought, well, I don't want to get a massive bill here because if someone else is using my landline in a cross-connection, then I'm paying for it all, you see, and things like that. Anyway, the next day, uh, the next morning, it still wasn't working on, last, uh, on, on this, this Friday past, yesterday, or, or two days ago. And about 2.30 in the afternoon, the phone rang for the first time in a week. Uh, and on comes a Canadian voice. And he says, well, that's your phone fix, he says. And this is a guy who does actual repair. And he was only called, he said, he got a call late last the night before. And he came out this mo- in the morning and he worked on it and found it. And uh, it was a junction, sure enough, somewhere outside uh, on the line, not inside the house at all, and not even pretty well near the house. But he repaired it, and um, and that was that. But as we go more and more into this offshore uh, investments and offshore uh, systems, with because it's cheap for the big corporations to use their facilities abroad, uh, it gets more and more bizarre and third worldish. For us back home, you see, when you have to go a whole week to find, uh, to get a problem solved. Where the same guy who called me, the bell repairman, who actually called me when he got it going, was the same guy who fixed it a year before, last year. Because it goes general every year, you see. So, out of this, uh, I found out, I think, I think I understand what's happening. That because they're they're putting these high fiber optic cables across along the main roads where houses are and so on. That's part of the human corridor projects under Agenda 21, of course. You find that uh, they don't branch out too far beyond it. So so the people can get their package deals with their TV, their phone, high-speed internet and so on alongside these routes. Uh, but if you're outside of that, even, even about a mile or so outside of that main uh, human corridor, uh, habitat corridor, then uh, you're still on the old lines and they're not giving any priorities at all to the old telephone lines. In fact, one of the calls I made to India, the woman, after about half an hour talking, thought I was on some, on some kind of cable package. I says, no, I've no package at all. All I've got is the old-fashioned telephone line, a normal telephone line, and so on. But it would seem that most folk now are getting all their package deals uh, but if you're outside, then you don't, and you don't get the high-speed internet either. So uh, you, you're, you have to get either a satellite or some other means to get uh, or Wi-Fi from a tower or something like that. And that's an incentive, of course, for families, especially those with children, to move into the human uh, corridor, uh, habitat corridors, where they can get the, the, the high-speed cable and all the rest of it. So you're always you're seeing this all the time. Forms of coercion are used on people, where literally eventually they'll stop maintaining lines outside that corridor, 
and I'll say it's unsustainable. It's not cost-effective to, to, to repair that one telephone line, or even the few that, that may be along it. And you're forced into their system, or forced to move. Coercion's one of the, the easiest ways to make people do things, maybe against their, their natural will, but they will go along with it because they'll get some kind of cost benefit, or which means a, a, a cost punishment if you don't. <laughs> That's how coercion works, of course. It's interesting to see, as I say, how most of the computerized systems, too, uh, and the complaints department on anything goes through India as well. And uh, it can be a nightmare, as I'm sure many of you know that, if you have problems with the internet or so on, if you have to go through uh, that, the, the India system. But that's the system we live in today, as we go completely, utterly global. We, we are global, actually, completely. And now they're simply, as you know, tidying up the rules and regulations for corporate interests uh, all over the world. The same corporations, by the way. Uh, most corporate, There's only a few corporations in existence, top corporations, and they own the subsidiaries of many other corporations you don't even know they're affiliated with. That's how it's been for quite a long time now. Monopolies run the world. And for a long time, I've done so many articles on the globalization issue where they're the same monopolies are just adding to their monopolies by buying over even private water rights, things like that, getting government on board always to pass laws so you, you can't even own your own water if you're a private citizen. And everything belongs eventually to the corporations who can manage it all better than you. You have this public-private partnership deal where we pay for all, all the costs of, of businesses and so on that, that join it through our tax money that's handed to them, the corporations, and they simply, uh, they, we pay for the running costs and repairs and everything. They, they simply have the profits, the private part of it. And that's how it's going. So eventually all things will be ruled. Like the old joke said years ago when I was a small child, the jokes in the paper used to say that eventually the world corporation will own everything. And that's not an exaggeration at all. Uh, your, your food supply, your water supply, electricity, uh, everything is to be owned by private corporate. Everything you need to live, that's all energy for heat, you name it, is to be owned by private corporations and, and reinforced by our governments that pass laws to make it so. The world that we live in is completely different from the one you've been trained to believe. It is in as far as the way it actually works. It's not democracy at all. According to the history, for instance, of the Royal Institute for International Affairs in, in England, uh, London, I should say, that was formed to set up a, a form of world government, which the big bankers of the day that formed the members of the inner party, they call themselves, of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and they would set policies for government to follow. They took members from all the higher walks of life and put them into government too. So prime ministers for all, all the years right to the present have been members of this. Many people, in fact, thought it was a communist organization. This is given a royal charter to exist, remember. That's the slice, a royal charter. Uh, and it's a private uh, 
and not-for-profit, supposedly, corporation, but it's the maker, it's the organization in Britain that makes a person's career to get up into the, the power politics of the real political world and global infrastructure and so on, and dealing with uh, policies for governments, national governments too. The British Commonwealth countries, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and so on, which are still in existence, they're still completely bound to this system, are exactly the same. And they have their Canadian uh, Council on Foreign Affairs, Australian, uh, New Zealand, and so on. And these guys run what's taught in universities. In fact, they're teamed with universities under private programs to set policies for teaching the students and the future leaders that are subservient to them because of their big fat paychecks. Because if you if you get picked up in university and work hard at their agendas uh, and don't ask too many questions, you get incredible promotion once you go into actually working. Uh, you may end up as a CEO of a big corporation, for instance, and things like that. So we're run by people we don't know. We're run by people we don't elect, and they're private institutions. That came out initially from the Lord Alfred Milner Group. Uh, that's what it was called before they, they gave themselves the Royal Institute for International Affairs name. And they were comprised of the elite of the day, power uh, banking, international, etc., etc. And their sons also were members of it too. They set policies for taking over the world's resources back then. And their personal historian... Professor Carl Quigley wrote about it in the Anglo-American establishment, the title of one of his books, where he's quite honest about this group existing for an awful long time, and actually since the late 1800s, and that every president of the U.S., for instance, he says, has been a member of this ever since. Regardless of the name changes of the organization, very secretive initially, in fact, so secretive up until about 1940s, even Winston Churchill wasn't aware of the actual name of the particular group that ran Britain. It, it ran its affairs, it ran its policies, it uh, stirred up trouble with certain countries to get wars started, including world wars, by the way, that's in their own archive section, and how they bring in a global government system, but not a sort of happy democratic system that you're all taught about, and many of the left-wing follow it for that reason, they think it's all for the good. Uh, it's not that at all. They believe that experts and the, the, the natural eugenical elite should rule the world, once you had proven through their genes and their, their marriages of always marrying the, the, the higher type, supposedly, uh, that they had the right to rule the world. Nothing's changed, except now they have various branches underneath them, under different names to confuse you all, so that you don't know the top organization above it all. You see your local one, or even your national organizations through universities, but you don't know exactly who started them up or why. Now, one of these organizations that simply is a part of the same organization, this world organization, that was part of the British Empire system and still is actually, um, is the Centre for International Governance Innovation called CG. This is what it says here on Wikipedia, which is the <laughs> kind of a very surface rundown. But it says, it's an independent, 
how can you be independent? You find out if you think about what I'm saying as I read this this article here. Independent, non-partisan. Again, think about that when you see the names that pop up in this. Think tank on global governance in Canada. Led by experienced practitioners of what? And distinguished academic CG supports research, forms networks, advances policy debate, actually creates the policy debates, and generates ideas for multilateral governance improvements. Conducting an active agenda of research, events, and publications, CG's interdisciplinary work includes collaboration with policy, business and academic communities around the world. Now remember, the Royal Institute for International Affairs group it was centred in Oxford, England, the university, and actually, actually in the All Souls College there, for the higher members, and their lifelong members to set global policy, including that for Britain. And they have them in these organisations across Canada and Australia, New Zealand, and so on. And it said here, uh, that it's uh, and of course they're a think tank now. When you put something under a charitable or non-profit organisation uh, that has an army of non-governmental organisations working under it, and it helps create the careers of the members while in university that brings in to do various studies and so on, uh, you're looking at a very private, influential, powerful system of running the country and the hope for the world too in a form of governance which is is more user friendly than government global government which of course is ultimate goal but it's also to go into a, a world if you really go into the documentation of it where experts rule the world again because the people are just too stupid to do it themselves anyway it says, until September 2014, CG was headquartered in the former Seagram Museum in the uptown district of Waterloo, Ontario. That's where the university is. It's now situated at, in the CG campus, which also houses the CG auditorium in the Basley School of International Affairs. See, it's all one organization, folks. Don't be fooled by the separate names here. This is still the Royal Institute for International Affairs, a Canadian branch, you see. The establishment of CG has been recognised as a major contributor to the growth of a local of local knowledge economy. So they're already involved in Waterloo. They influence decisions in, by the council, uh, no doubt by education, and it helps. I'm no doubt too this helps set curriculums because the Royal Institute for International Affairs set up by these banking boys and their sons who did the groundwork around the world to take over the world's resources, eventually branched in to uh, creating policies via universities and choosing and training future world leaders in all different areas of global governance, you see, uh, under the United Nations, which again, the Royal Institute of International Affairs set up and put forth using the U.S. to promote it, initially under the League of Nations, but they used their U.S. branch, the CFR, to push it uh, into World War One, And it became the United Nations. The United Nations has an umbrella of them all, and the IMF, the Bank for International Settlements, all these organizations, 
uh, even even amalgamated uh, European bank system, is all comes under this organisation, Relationship for International Affairs, CFR, CG, etc. They're all one organisation in different branches, sometimes working on different uh, parts of the, the, their policies. So anyway, it says, um, the growth of local knowledge and economy surrounding Waterloo region. In 2007, the city of Waterloo was named the top, world's top intelligent community. What they create, too, are these model cities, they call them under the United Nations, where their members of the CFR, Relationship for International Affairs, Canadian Institute for International Affairs, they help set the policies for the cities and so on via the councillors that are there. And often they bring some councillors on board to make sure they get the policies through. Now it says, um, CG was founded in 2001. Up until then, you simply had the, the, the CFR name, uh, the King Council of Foreign Relations and Foreign Affairs, uh, which you still have. But uh, it's a division of them. It was founded in 2001 by Jim Balsilli, co-CEO of Research in Motion, who did Black, uh, BlackBerry, following his vision to lay the framework for an institution tasked with helping solve the world's most pressing challenges. So it's amazing that everyone who makes an awful lot of money, out of the blue, just a sudden genius, you know, um, suddenly become these great philanthropists that want to change the world and want to get involved in all governmental policies and educational policies and everything else. It's, it's, it's just amazing to me, isn't it? But if you've ever gone into the way it works, and it was, I think it was Glenn Ford, the actor, set up his own little foundation to challenge a lot of what he knew was going on in his day. And he put a, a movie out called Brotherhood of the Bell. He paid for it himself uh, to show you how through secret organizations, doesn't matter what they're called, and you take oaths and all the rest of it to the organization, then they would, your, the doors would open for you and money would flow in and, and business, whatever it happened to be career-wise. Uh, the sky was the limit if you obeyed their agenda. And it's a good analogy to how the whole system works with what I'm talking about right now. It says, um, Balsili made an initial donation of $20 million dollars to establish the new Economy Institute, renamed CG, in 2002, with Mike Lazaridis. Sounds like a, a, an infection that raises you from the dead, eh? Lazaridis, his then co-CEO at RIM, contributing an additional $10 million. They combined $30 million in funds. This is for a private, you know, non-profit. Was matched by the government of Canada. The taxpayers paid another thirty million to the. That's how it works in every country, folks. If you think you've got free independence and so on, right? No. No. Among CG's first staff was its initial executive director, John English, director of public affairs, John Milroy or Malloy, and distinguished fellows Andrew F. Cooper and Paul Heinbecker. The first CG International Board of Governors was held in October 2003 with early members including Jagdish Bhagwati, Joe Clark, Angel Guria, and Anne-Marie Slaughter. As is in 2005, CG published its first working paper and experienced rapid growth in its research agenda, publications, and public events programming. In 2007, CG partnered with the University of Waterloo and Wilfrid Laurier University to launch the BSIA. 
In 2009, CG announced plans to house the BSIA within a CG campus that would be built alongside its headquarters in Waterloo. The resulting $69 million complex received federal and provincial funding, totaling $50 million through the Knowledge Infrastructure Program and Ontario's 2009 budget. The city of Waterloo donated the land for the campus through a 99-year lease. Not bad, eh? And then it says, uh, construction of the CG campus was complete in November 2011. That year, CG celebrated its 10th anniversary with the opening of the CG campus and published a CG at 10 retrospective book celebrating its history. In May 2012, uh, Rowan Medora joined CG as a president after having served on CG's International Board of Governors since 2009. So International Board of Governors too, you see. Medora is former Vice President of Programs at the International Development Research Centre. Mendora uh, succeeded former CG Executive Director by Thomas A. Burns, who previously held high-level positions at the International Monetary Fund. Interesting, eh? That all the organisations set up by the Royal Institute for International Affairs, a private organisation with a strict agenda, more widely known years ago than it is today. It's been very quiet as to what it's really up to. But they set up the Bank for International Settlements, the World Bank, the IMF, and all the rest of it. All private institutions, by the way, owned by their members. So here you go. Uh, Medora is the former Vice President of Programs at the International Development Research Centre. Medora succeeded former CG Executive Director by Thomas Burns, previously held the high-level position at the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the Government of Canada. Interesting, eh? CG's senior management team also includes former Toronto Star editor-in-chief, which they have all the top moguls for the newspapers, chains, and so on, and TV uh, media chains and all that. Uh, Star editor-in-chief Jai Fred Kunz as vice president of public affairs, and David B. Dewitt, former associate vice president of research, social sciences, and humanities at York University, who now serves as CG's vice president of programs. This is uh, 2013, CG appointed Domenico Lombardi as director of his Global Economy Program. The Global Economy Program. Lombardi is a former chair at the Oxford Institute for Economic Policy. No kidding, eh? And has held positions on the executive boards of major international financial institutions such as the International Monetary Fund, once again, and once again, the World Bank. Well, CG's earlier research focused solely on international relations and the international economy. The Centre's programme now examined three themes, the global economy, global security and politics, and international law. To integrate the, all the economies of the world and the systems and the governments into one system, you must always use international law bit by bit by bit. That's how they formed the European Union, and it's still ongoing with total integration with that. So CG's Global Economy Program includes analysis on macroeconomic regulation, financial regulation, and trade policy. This program is a central area of the think tank's expertise, especially in the wake of the global financial crisis. So they're independent, it's a private, non-profit think tank that just happens to work with governments to advise them on all policies. And no one elects these private organizations. They're appointed by private institutions. And 
CG's global uh, economy researchers were directly involved in the process that led to the 2000 creation on the G20 at the leaders' level and have conducted an active G20 outreach program since the 2009 Pittsburgh G20 Summit. The Centre's Global Security and Politics Programme examines a range of issues in peace, conflict and security, including Arctic governance is another thing too, internet governance and security cooperation in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, they set up the, the, the whole staff and presented the government for the, the new internet, internet governance, by the way. What's your government for, except rubber stamping, what private organisations put forward to them. The right ones, of course. Yeah. This CG's International Law Research Program was announced in November 2013, focuses on three key areas, intellectual property law, international economic, financial and investment law, regulation and governance, and environmental law and treaties. They're one of the biggest organizations to push this total, total integration of the economy and sustainability uh, global warming, uh, uh, taxes on carbon and all the rest of it. Because you see, all of that, including the United Nations, is its own by Institute of International Affairs that runs all of the topics you hear about all the time on the news that's going to affect all your lives. And it goes through some of the experts. Now, distinguished practitioners, researchers and academics produce CG research uh, outputs and exploring and contributing to CG's four research programs. Now, this goes on to talk about uh, publications they put out. You find that the CFR turns them out as well, and they're involved in other think tanks under the same umbrella as Rolling Sheet for International Affairs. But anyway, this is uh, CG publications include books and e-books, papers, special reports, policy briefs, and conference reports. Publications are available online, generally under a Creative Commons license, with some editions available in print. Notable publications. Now, the ones in print, by the way, are generally expensive. That's how they do it. Uh, and generally way too expensive, because they don't want the general public reading it. They want their members to read it or have copies at home, of course. This is notable publications include special reports, papers, commentaries, and series that have focused on improving the G20 process. Now, it's interesting, too, this private organization, Royal Institute for International Affairs, CFR, and all other names it goes under, created the G20. It was not voted in by the public. In fact, it was never put to the public any more than the United Nations was put to the, the public as an idea that should be voted on. Then it goes on to say the global financial crisis, sovereign debt, restructuring, constructive powers, Arctic governance, internet governance, and the Millennium Development Goals. That's Agenda 21, for those who don't know about it. So here they are doing all of this stuff that you hear. Always mention the media, but they never tell you who is behind it and where these policy things come from, you see. And why governments uh, are taking stuff put out by the private institutions and running with it so it's their own policies. That's how the public perceive it, that politicians are putting all this through themselves. But it's done by these private, non-elected organizations. And it says events, public-private events are held regularly at the CG, in addition to policy workshops and public lectures. CG holds conferences that gather experts and policymakers from around the world to discuss possible solutions to the issues raised by CG's research. And it says notable past guest speakers at CG-sponsored events include Paul Martin, 
uh, Ernesto Zerillo, Dr. James Orbinski, Emma Rothschild, Jose Antonio Ocampo, Jeff Rubin, uh, Dambisa Moyo, Paul Krugman, and Jeffrey Sachs, it says. Partners, and it says, um, you, you got, uh, since its exception, CG is partnered with other think tanks, because it's, it's all one big, massive world group of think tanks, folks, run and set up by the same organization that set up this group. It says, so the partnership with organizations around the world, partnership is currently underway with Institute for New Economic Thinking, an, an organization funded by George Soros, well, naturally, to bring about ideas that will lead to lasting solutions to the world's various economic challenges. Well, he helped create, George Soros, as you know, his history, a lot of the economic challenges of the world, too. He's crashed economies with a couple of his buddies, uh, as they did in Britain, uh, through their, their their very clever way of taking down the country, forcing Britain to borrow from, again, the big private moneylenders again. Other current and past partners include Chatham House, that's the headquarters for Royal Institute for International Affairs, the Brookings Institution, C.D. Howe Institute, Inter-American Dialogue, the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, International Relations and Security Network, and the Stanley Foundation. See, all these big private foundations that were the front organizations for the big corporate boys at the top. They set up a long time ago. Carnegie, all these big boys are, are connected, you see. It goes through more and more this, this, this story, this, this story and so on, uh, about different people involved with it, etc., etc. So that's the, that's the Wikipedia article on them, too. And I won't go in, in, in too much depth on who set them up, really, as I say, as I mentioned here. And from their own website, it says here that... Um, the Centre for International Governance and Innovation is an independent, non-partisan think tank. Independent, although we, they, they've got millions of dollars from the government of Canada and the local government and so on. Independent, non-partisan think tank. Not bad if you can start up money like that, eh? Focused on international governance, led by experienced practitioners and distinguishers. that support research forms, networks, advances policy debates and generates ideas for multilateral governance improvements. So... It's it's quite something. Um, it says here, two mission is to build bridges from knowledge to power by conducting world-leading research and analysis and influencing policymakers, actually politicians. So here's your politicians. Make sure they get your tax money so that the same think tanks can do their own pre-written out uh, agenda to make to give to the policymakers and, and government. Right? And it says their beliefs here are is better international governance can improve the lives of people everywhere by increasing prosperity, right? Where have you heard that a thousand times over? Ensuring global sustainability, that's your greening agenda, depopulation agenda, and austerity agenda. Addressing inequality and safeguarding human rights, and promoting a secure world, and so on. So uh, I'll put some of these links up tonight for those that want to, to look for it, because it's... <laughs> It's quite something, really. It's quite something when when you see what's really going on uh, in these these organisations. Now, if you just take the other branch, one of the other branches that's run by the same organisation that runs CG as the Council on Foreign Relations in the US, 
And you'll find, for instance, that Lloyd Axworthy, who was up in government in Canada, was the head of the CFR for the U.S. for a long time. Anyway, because it's the same organization, you see. It says, Council on Foreign Relations says, founded in 1921, is a United States non-profit, again, 4,900-member organization, publisher, and think tank. Here we go again. Specializing in U.S. foreign policy and international affairs, headquartered in New York City, with an additional office in Washington, D.C., naturally. You understand, these cries create the policies for the U.S. as well. Well, it's Britain, U.S., Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, and so on. Its membership has included senior politicians, more than a dozen uh, secretaries of state, CIA directors, the bankers, lawyers, professors, and senior media figures. Everybody who gives you your reality and runs the system belongs to it. The CFR promotes globalization, free trade, reducing financial regulations on transnational corporations. In other words, that's who started up. Big bankers started up, remember and economic consolidation into regional blocs, such as NAFTA, and they were the ones who drafted up the NAFTA integration policy, and the European policy under the Royal Institute of International Affairs. Private organization drafted it all up for governments to sign onto, and they did sign onto it, because they were told to, because the leaders of the governments were members of it too. As I never mentioned, when they run for election, what they belong to, is it? And nobody asked them. The CFR meetings convene government officials, global business leaders, and prominent members of the intelligence foreign policy community to discuss international issues. CFR publishes the bi-monthly journal Foreign Affairs and runs the think tank David Rockefeller Studies Program, which influences foreign policy by making recommendations to the presidential administration and diplomatic community, testifying before Congress, interacting with the media, which all the media moguls are members of it too, and publishing on foreign policy issues. Well, how can you possibly call yourself a democracy when your policy is to keep the people completely in the dark as to who is really running the country, where all these policies are made and by whom, and that these policies are made by organizations already have set policies and missions for the last hundred years, as to where they want to take the world on behalf of the, in, the financial elites that run the big top corporations of the world. Why bother voting at all when they keep the public in the dark and in an ignorance and put forth these little members at the bottom, which are as presidents or prime ministers, as frontmen, uh, to give you the farce that you're still a democracy? But the people truly are kept in the dark about all of this. Truly are. Now, just to give you how they started off in the States and their history, it says Elihu Root, Elihu Root, is a powerful corporate lawyer. He was a frontman for big, massive corporations, who served as Secretary of State, Secretary of War, and U.S. Senator, headed the first Council on Foreign Relations with a small group of New York financiers, as bankers, the private bankers. And lawyers, but they were the biggest ones that became the Federal Reserve, by the way, too, or were the Federal Reserve. Towards the end of World War One, a working fellowship of about 150 scholars called the Inquiry. That's the term they gave themselves there because they were really run from Britain by uh, the Milner Group. 
before they, the Milner Group changed its name to Royal Institute of International Affairs. So in the States, they called it Inquiry. Was tasked to brief President Woodrow Wilson about options for the post-war world when Germany was defeated. Uh, this academic band, including Wilson's closest advisor and longtime friend, Colonel Edward M. House, who was in direct contact with Lord Hill uh, Grey, uh, and Lord Grey from England, uh, was the, one of the top men for the, the, the Milner Group at the time, Lord Alfred Milner Group, that ran the British Empire system. Anyway, says, as well as Walter Lippmann, met to assemble a strategy for the post-war world. The team produced more than 2,000 documents detailing and analyzing the political, economic, and social facts globally that would be helpful for Wilson in the peace talks. Now, going to their private uh, archives, the Council on Foreign Relations, Professor Carl Quigley, who was an archivist for a while, who was all for it and, and, and was, had no beefs with it at all, he said that um, they helped set the whole of the U.S. policies and, and agenda. And they also wanted wars initially to bring on global government and get folk on them to their knees and they'd give up nationalism and so on. Then again, the correct people, the big top banking folk and the experts would run the world, you see, for their own sakes at the top and their high profits and so on, and their monopoly structure of corporations. Anyway, it says here, the reports from the basis for the 14 points, which outlined Wilson's strategy for peace after war's end. They then travelled to Paris Peace Conference in 1919 and participated in discussions there. As a result of discussions at the Peace Conference, a small group of British and American diplomats and scholars met on May 30th, 1919 at the Hotel Majestic in Paris and decided to create an Anglo-American organisation called the Institute of International Affairs. It's quite amazing how they actually keep the Lord Alfred Miller group out of it to this day. This is which would have offices in London and New York. Due to the isolationist views prevalent in American society at the time, the scholars had difficulty gaining traction with their plan and turned their focus instead to a set of discrete meetings that had been taking place since June 1918 in New York City under the name Council on Foreign Relations. So, again, you give it a, a, a more interesting, a more secretive kind of name, basically. Like, who cares if uh, one of these private groups on foreign relations? Not realizing it runs your economic system, all the top members, your political system completely, and your future uh, as well, because they plan the future. The meetings were headed by the corporate lawyer Elihu Root, who had served as Secretary of State under President Theodore Roosevelt, and attended by 108 high-ranking officers of banking, manufacturing, trading, and finance companies, together with many lawyers, naturally. The members were proponents of Wilson's internationalism, but were particularly concerned about the effect that the war and the Treaty of Peace might have on post-war business, their own businesses. The scholars from the inquiry saw an opportunity here to create an organization that brought diplomats, high-level government officials, and academics together with lawyers, bankers, and industrialists to engineer government policy. Now, that, that can go over your head, but listen again. Remember, this is like Wall Street, the top bankers of the, the early Federal Reserve, and uh, the Chase Manhattan Bank, all these big boys. This is, and, and top corporate guys who already owned 
huge businesses in the States. It says, uh, <laughs> it says that um, they want to basically create an organization that brought diplomats, high-level government officials, and academics together with lawyers, bankers, and industrials to engineer government policy. Did you vote any of the bankers in? No. To your democracy? No. Uh, together with law- did you vote any of the lawyers in? No. Did you vote any of the, the guys from uh, academia in? No. Did you vote the industrialists in? No. Did you give anybody the right to engineer government policy? No. Nothing's changed to this present day, folks. So on July 29th, 1921, they filed a certification of academics together with lawyers and so on. Uh, the, the, the creation of incorporations, they incorporated themselves, officially forming the Council on Foreign Relations. In 1922, Edwin F. Gay, former dean of the Harvard Business School and director of shipping board during the war, spearheaded the council's efforts to begin publication of a magazine that would be the authoritative source on foreign policy. The authoritative source, a private magazine that would be the authoritative source on foreign policy that all the, that the little, little lackeys of politicians would read to you see. He gathered under of $25,000 from the wealthy members on the council and via sending letters soliciting funds to the thousand richest Americans. Using these funds, the first issue of Foreign Affairs was published September 22 and within a few years had gained a reputation as the most authoritative American review dealing with international relations. So there you go. That's how it's done. That's how it's done, folks. Everybody who, who knows what the CFR is, is a member of the establishment. If, if, and you have to be to get up there, not to get in in the first place. And the doors are open for you and up you go. And through their charitable foundations and the guys who put forth as inventors and so on, that suddenly get millions of dollars as a genius, uh, become uh, philanthropists for them and uh, funnel money into other big projects for the world agenda. Always the same world agenda. In the late 1930s, the Ford Foundation and Rockefeller Foundation began contributing large amounts of money to the council. In 1938, they created various committees on foreign relations, which later became governed by the American Committees on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C., Actually, that's where the Congress is. Throughout the country, funded by a grant from the Carnegie Corporation. See, all these big non-profit corporations and, 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 and um, foundations, you see, are all working on the same, they're all part of the same structure, same group, which is the same one at the top. Influential men were to be chosen in a number of cities and would then be brought together for discussions in their own communities, as well as participating in an annual conference in New York. These local com- committees serve to influence local leaders and shape public opinion to build support for the council's policies. That's what they're doing with their sustainability and everything else and, and uh, the cap and trade taxes for the carbon and all the rest of it. It's all these boys who put it all forth. This is while also acting as useful listening posts throughout which the council and U.S. government could sense the mood of the country. They create the mood of the country, then they sense it to make sure they're, it's working on the public. Beginning in 1939, lasting for five years, the council achieved much greater prominence within the government and the State Department when it established uh, the strictly confidential War and Peace Studies. 
funded entirely by the Rockefeller Foundation. The secrecy surrounding the group was such that the council members who were not involved in its deliberations were completely unaware of the study group's existence. So you see, they also, just like the Royal Ship International Affairs, have their inner party at the top and their outer party of workers beneath them. And their inner one is much more secretive as their true goals, names, and so on. So it says, uh, it was divided into four functional topic groups, economic and financial, security and armaments, territorial and political. The security and armaments group was headed by Alan Welsh Dolls, who later became a pivotal figure in the CIA's predecessor, the Office of Strategic Services, OSS. The CFR ultimately produced 682 memoranda for the State Department, marked classified and circulated amongst the appropriate government departments. So each a private corporation running uh, the OSS, becoming the CIA, and running your State Department and everything else. Hasn't changed to this day, same, still going on, it's just the same. And they've, got, they've pretty well achieved some of their goals. They're on the next, this whole century's plans for this whole century the new American century. It says, um, a critical study found that 502 government officials surveyed from 1945 to 1972, uh, more than half were members of the Council on Foreign Relations. More than half got their jobs actually in government <laughs> by being members of the Council and put into those jobs. During the Eisenhower administration, 40% of the top U.S. foreign policy officials were Council on Foreign Relations members. Eisenhower himself had been a council member under Truman. 42% of the top posts were filled by council members. During the Kennedy administration, this number rose to 51% and peaked at 57% under the Johnson administration. This is an anonymous piece called The Sources of Soviet Conduct that appeared in Foreign Relations in 1947. The Council on Foreign Relations Study Group members, George Kennan, coined the term containment. This would prove to be highly influential in U.S. foreign policy for seven upcoming presidential administrations. So, it says... uh, William Bundy created the CFR study groups with helping to lead the f- uh, framework for, of thinking that led to the Marshall Plan of Lend-Lease. Of course, the big banks massively profited off that, of other countries. And NATO, so a big war-making machine, was also run and created by the members of the Council on Foreign Relations. Due to new interest in the group, membership grew towards 1,000 because everybody wants to get up. All the psychopaths flood into it. This article says um, Dwight D. Eisenhower chaired the CFR study group while he served as president of Columbia University. One member later said, whatever General Eisenhower knows about economics, he's learned from the study group meetings. The CFR study group devised an expanded study group called Americans for Eisenhower to increase his chances for the presidency. So they make sure that they, all the think tanks, policymakers get on board to pick their, prime, their presidents and prime ministers. Eisenhower would later draw many cabinet members from the CFR ranks, and, and actually is a good, a good lot of uh, the, the bureaucrats are, uh, at the federal level are picked too. And it says from CFR ranks, he became a CFR member himself. His primary CFR appointment was Secretary of State John Foster Dulles. Dulles gave a public address at the Harold Pratt House, that's the headquarters in New York City. And Britain, of course, is Chatham House. As in, New York City, in which he announced a new direction for Eisenhower's foreign policy. 
It says, um, after a speech that was made there, the Council convened a session on nuclear weapons and foreign policy and chose Henry Kissinger, another member, you see, to head it. And Kissinger also is a member of the, of the Trilateral Commission, which is another branch of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is, again, the Royal for International Affairs. <laughs> Yeah, so Kissinger spent the following academic year working on the project called at House uh, Council Headquarters. The book of the same name uh, he published when his research in 1957 gave him national recognition, topping the national uh, bestseller list. Naturally, it did because of the promotion they gave through all the controlled media, who were all the members were all, the top were all magnets again, uh, newspaper magnets that belonged to the CFR too. So they can make stars, and they do. They make stars. On November 2453, a small group heard a report from the political scientist William Henderson regarding the ongoing conflict between France and Vietnamese Communist leader Ho Chi Minh, uh, Viet Minh forces, a struggle that would later become known as the First Indochina War. Henderson argued that Ho's cause was primarily nationalist in nature and that Marxism had little to do with the current revolution. Further reports said the United States could work with Ho to guide his movement away from communism State Department officials, however, expressed scepticism about direct American intervention in Vietnam, and the idea was tabled. Over the next 20 years, the U.S. would find itself allied with anti-communist South Vietnam and against Ho and his supporters in the Vietnam War. It says the Council served as a breeding ground for important American policies, such as mutual deterrence, arms control, and nuclear non-proliferation. In 1962, the group began a program of bringing select Air Force officers to the Harold Pratt House to study alongside its scholars. So all, all top members of the military are members as well. The Army, Navy and Marine Corps requested they start similar programs for their own officers. A four-year study of relations between America and China were conducted by the Council between 64 and 68. One study published in 1966 concluded that American citizens were more open to talks with China than their elected leaders, and so on and so on. He goes on more and more about Vietnam. It says in November 1979, while chairman of the CFR, David Rockefeller, became embroiled in an international incident when he and Henry Kissinger, along with John J. McCloy and Rockefeller aides, persuaded President Jimmy Carter, who was also a CFR member, through the State Department to admit the Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pavlavi, into the U.S. for hospital treatment for lymphoma. This action directly participated in what was known as the Iran hostage crisis and placed Rockefeller under intense media scrutiny, particularly from the New York Times for the first time in his public life. Well, Rockefeller was, was the guy, actually, who, who was chairman of the damn board for this private organization for a long time, too. He also was completely involved in, um, with his brothers in the, in the CIA. So anyway, this is the, in his book, The White House Diary, Carter wrote of the affair on April 9th, 1979. David Rockefeller came in, apparently to induce me to let the Shah come to the United States. Rockefeller, Kissinger, and Brzezinski seemed to be adopting this as a joint project. Now, don't think for a minute that these names that have been there for such a long time, Rockefeller, Kissinger, and Brzezinski, are, are the, that's where it all ended. No. It's still there today. Brzezinski's still on the go. Kissinger's still on the go. And um, the Rockefellers are still held involved in their think tank, too. And plus, uh, you have other names now, too, that try to keep out the limelight. They're in high positions of this foreign policy and all the rest of it, and your banking, you name it.
as is here, their mission on the website says the CFR's mission is to be a resource for its members, government officials, business executives, journalists, educators and students, civic and religious leaders and other interested citizens in order to help them better understand the world and their foreign policy choices facing the US and other countries. Everything that gives you your reality, that's all education, everything, is on board with this one organization that sets all their policies. CFR promotes globalization and free trade, reducing financial regulations on transnational corporations and economic consolidation into regional blocks, such as NAFTA, uh, the European Union, and develops policy recommendations that reflect these goals. And it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Uh, and it's, they're massive organizations, these so-called private, supposedly, think tanks. And they place people into politics for you to, to vote for. In all parties, by the way, the leaders are members of this organization. Quite something. It's, it's quite something. So, it says here, this is a little interesting thing too, it says... The corporate membership, 250 total, is divided into associates, affiliates, that's $30,000 plus, president's circle, $60,000 plus, and founders, $100,000 plus. All corporate executive members have opportunities to hear distinguished speakers, such as overseas presidents and prime ministers, chairmen and CEOs of multinational corporations, and U.S. officials and congressmen. President and premium members are also entitled to other benefits, including attendance at small private dinners or receptions with senior American officials and world leaders. They are, this is the organization that helps run the world, does run the world, in fact. And you keep voting uh, the front men they put forward in, because you're still, can, still stuck in left wing and right wing. Remember what Quigley said, he says, we don't care who comes in. He says, we take in members from... Communism, fascism, dictatorships, and so on, around the world. The whole idea is to make sure that all the leaders are yours. And the leaders of industry are yours. The leaders of the banking systems, the top ones, are yours. And the and CEOs of big international corporate are yours. In fact, to be a CEO of a top international corporation, you have to start off as a member, and they open the doors and push you up. Same in politics, and same in everything else. Academia, you name it. That's, that's how the world really is run. And it's all run again by the main headquarters one in England. The Royal Institute for International Affairs. And Canada is the same. So is Australia, New Zealand, and some other countries now too. That's, that's how it's really run. They set up the Bank for International Settlements, the International Monetary Fund, they own them, private institutions. And um, all the globalization institutions, they, they run and operate. They set the policies for every country. They set all the policies in the United Nations for all the treaties. They draft them up, and, and the UN then gives it to us. And the CFR members sign it in your country into law. And none of this is ever mentioned election time. Never will be. And they know too that a lot of people are, are so overwhelmed 
with entertainment and, and electronic lifestyle that I have today, that they don't really care. And that's why we're in the mess we're in today. And you're seeing the side effects that you, you complain about without realizing the causes. There's lots of side effects. There's endless side effects to complain about. Why is this happening? Why is that? Well, look at the causes. Look who says it all. You don't have democracies. And they're taking into this communitarianism with their private NGO leaders. They'll be the new commissars for your sustainable communities. From Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God or your gods go with you.